Welcome to another episode, the first episode of 2022. Let's just pray that the pandemic ends. Y'all remember the pre-pandemic world? We probably don't. But uh, one of the hottest topics we have are student loans. I am somebody who uh, married well, so my wife just paid off my student loan. Shout out to my beautiful bride, Ellen Rucker Sellers. Yes, you got to marry well. Uh, but I have here a student loan expert, so we're going to get into it. Ashley Harrington is not only somebody who is more knowledgeable than I about all of this, but she's also beautiful, brilliant, and she could be whatever she wants to be in the world when she grows up. Ashley, what's going on? How are you? I am great. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. And you got to tell me about this whole marrying up thing and send, send, some, send some, some folks my way then, because I got a lot Oh, no, to- no, no. My friends ain't shit, so you don't... Mm-mm. No, I, I love you too much to do that. You'll be like, Bakari, why did you? Mm-mm. So I, I've learned that lesson. <laughs> so look, we start each one of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And I think it's fair to say that you're a student loan expert now, but you've had various career stops after finishing law school at NYU. So why did you choose higher education finance? And how did you become so knowledgeable in this very nuanced area that now is at the forefront of the political uh, education spectrum? So I think it starts the way a lot of things start for for Black folks, right? We see this in our everyday lives. I have student loans. So it became a thing that I had to deal with on a regular basis. Um, And I got into higher ed finance by way of general consumer protection lending policy as someone who really wanted to do work in policy that helped Black people um, have access to wealth, right? And have the ability to have wealth building opportunities and learning about the different policies and programs that were preventing us from doing so. And so... Um, I did a couple of years um, in the New York governor's office, and then I came to a place called Center for Responsible Lending, where they did general advocacy around fair lending, consumer protection, and one of the areas they focused on was student loans. And as I got into that policy area, learned more about it and realized how big this problem was, right? When you have your own student loans, you're dealing with it. But I think for so long, it wasn't something we talked about, right? Our friends didn't really talk about it. It's just something you had and you were kind of like a little bit embarrassed about. And then But one thing that I'm grateful for is by doing this work and being part of this conversation, it's not just a conversation that's happening at the national level. It's now happening in the in the spaces that we inhabit just in our day to day lives. So I'm talking about it with friends. I'm talking about it with families, with with family members. And and we're all talking about how this has impacted our life and what we do about it and how we navigate it. And so I think it started with that very real lived experience that this is a problem that impacts me and so many people who look like me. Wow. Talk about the difference in the work that you did on the state level versus the federal level, because um, when people are talking about consumer protection and when people are talking about student loans in particular, a lot of times they don't understand the differences and what is a state responsibility and what is a federal responsibility. And I, I don't mean to sound like conjunction junction. What's your function over here? But can you explain the differences or the nuances when it comes to state and federal when it comes to consumer protection on those various levels? Absolutely. So at the state level, I did focus more on um, small business um, and access to opportunities for minority and women-owned businesses, um, as well as uh, state workforce diversity, and then got it more into the fair lending space. But on the state versus federal side, they both have a role to play, right? So state, state consumer protection has traditionally been a state role, which is why you see now that the student loan industry has continued to grow and it's become such a problem. We've got 44 million people, $1.7 trillion. You're seeing more states do things like create student loan borrower bill of rights. They're really leaning in on how they are um, enforcing, uh, enforcing servicing requirements and making sure that consumers are protected at the state level. That's a 
in addition to what is done at the federal level, and they really complement each other, but so much of consumer protection does happen at the federal, at the state level. And that was the case um, until we also saw that breakdown um, in the 2008 crisis. And now we have the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which also has a big enforcement role. And it's the only federal agency from since that was created in 2010 that has the sole and primary mission of protecting consumers. We have these other federal regulators. We have these other federal bodies, but that's not their central mission. There was no one whose job, whose main job was to protect consumers. And so now we have that. This isn't a progressive ideal, though. This isn't a progressive or a or a uh, conservative ideal. I know a lot of people are listening and saying, oh, my goodness, these progressive agencies, et cetera. This is just something that is necessary in a functioning democracy. I also feel like there are misconceptions around student debt. So I wanted to do a quick student debt 101 for our listeners. So first things first, really quickly explain the difference between federal student loans and private student loans and how big are these markets? So the federal student loan market is the biggest market. When we're talking about the $1.7 trillion, 90% of that is federal, federally held or federally guaranteed student loans. So the primary way people are financing higher education is through federally guaranteed or, or held student loans. The rest, less than 10% of the market is, is private education loans. And we are seeing some growth in that market. Um, that market also was impacted by the 2008 crisis. And we saw um, kind of a, a, a decline in private loans, but we're seeing that start to increase yet again. Um, so the federal, the federal loans are really the, the main piece when we're talking about federal, how we people finance their, their higher education. And we do encourage people to max out their federal student loans before they go to the private market. And that's because the federal student loan system has more protections for borrowers. It has things like income-based repayment um, it, and, and forgiveness at the end of that. Um, it has things like um, protections for people um, who are totally permanently disabled protections for people um, when, when they die. It has things, it has um, more consumer protections. Um, it has set interest rates, right? Those are things that are set annually based on a formula set by Congress. Um, and so all of these things are packed in and we really encourage folks to, to max out their federal student loans whenever they can before they go to the private market, just because they'll have more protections that way. So what are the pros and cons of debt cancellation? How much would debt cancellation cost and how exactly would debt cancellation work if it happened? And would you still have a job? I mean, do we I mean, if, do we need to be canceling it? Is Ashley going to be out of work? Uh, I, unfortunately, I would not be out of work because so there, there's two parts of this. And this is where we see this huge debate over student loan cancellation on a couple of things. It's one, should we do it all? Two, how much should we do? And three, does it really help if we don't do anything about the college affordability crisis? Right. right. So many people, their biggest concern with cancellation is that we are going to end up here again in 10 years. If we if all we do is cancel student loans, what about all the people who are still going to college and still don't have a way to pay for without taking on significant amounts of debt? And that's very true, right? We absolutely have to do something about how we finance higher education. We absolutely have to do something about college affordability. But those are two separate problems that people conflate together. And I think so often when we have policy conversations, we are looking for this one fits all solution. And it stops us from doing the other things that are in between, right? And so we can talk about cancellation and we can also talk and how we help current student loan borrowers. And we can also talk about how we, how we help future student loan borrowers. And those conversations don't have to necessarily be had together, but they also don't, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? And it doesn't mean because we haven't figured out one, we shouldn't do the other. 
right? But it is acknowledging that, yes, we have a very big problem. So that's one piece. The other piece is how much should be canceled? So you've heard everything from 10K to 25K to 30K to 50K. Um, right now, the biggest push that, that we are seeing is this charge led by Senator Schumer, Senator Warren, and Representative Ayanna Presley about, um, about canceling 50K in student debt by executive mm -hmm. action. And, you know, the arguments for that side are that this will have a major impact. So let's talk about what 50K will do and why supporters of 50K support 50K. First of all, Black folks have the most student debt. We're more likely to borrow, to borrow more into struggle and repayment. So we're watching our balances grow. 20 years into repayment, the typical Black borrower still has 95% of their original balance, 20 years into repayment. Meanwhile, a typical white borrower has paid off 96% of the original balance. So people are, people are paying for years, for decades, and not seeing their balances go down. And so when you cancel 50K, you're going to have a disproportionate impact on those folks who are, the, who are the most burdened by student loans, and that's Black folks. The Roosevelt Institute recently put out a report and said that if, if 50K was canceled per borrower, you would see an immediate increase in Black wealth for those borrowers of 40%. 40% increase in black wealth. So that's a separate conversation. You have the other folks who say, well, it's going to help a lot of white folks, it's going to help a lot of wealthy folks. It's not going to close the racial wealth gap. Absolutely, student loan debt cancellation alone is not going to close the racial wealth gap. But what it is going to do is make a significant difference in the wealth of black people and the lie in the very real lives of black people, right? Who aren't able to build wealth. The very folks you thought would build wealth because they went to college and did everything right but can't do it because they have this burden that they can't get out from under. And so they often have negative wealth, right? We have negative wealth because of student loans. We still can't buy houses. We can't start businesses. We can't save for retirement. And we can't do the things that you would expect college educated, college, grad, college graduates to be able to do. Sorry, that was a little bit. No, you actually answered the next question too, but let me push back on it. I'm with you, but let me just, I hate when people say play devil's advocate because the devil don't need no help. But let me let me push back and just say, what do you say to those folk? Even some this isn't just a conservative argument. They're older black folk to say, hey, you, you made that choice. You know, why am I subsidizing? It's, it's a cultural argument. Why am I subsidizing your education? I mean, I'm out here. I'm busting my ass. I'm a union worker. I didn't go out here and incur all of this student loan debt. Instead of going to NYU, Ashley, why didn't you just go to state tech, you know, and, and get your degree? But now you want me to subsidize your education for a choice you made. How do you respond to these cultural arguments? I think, you know. Absolutely, these are arguments. And I think the answer to those is that for so many folks, it actually wasn't a choice, right? We live in a day and age where not only are we encouraging people to go to college, but, in, but you're required to go to college. The vast majority of jobs since the Great Recession have gone to people with college degrees. So if you want a job and if you want, the, if you want a higher income, you have to go to college. But on the flip side, how do you pay for that? So we're basically putting people between a rock and a hard place. We're saying go to college. We've created a situation where they pretty much have to. And then we're saying, but how are you going to pay for it? And we're watching as that, that cost has been pushed onto families over the last couple of decades. When the Pell Grant was first created, um, it covered 70% of the cost of tuition at a state college. Now it covers 30%. Conservatives, old folks, let's have a real conversation about what going to college and what college looks like today. Going to college today doesn't look like it did 
um, 20 or 30 years ago. You can't work your way through college um, at the current wage level. So wages have been stagnant, even, even as the cost of college, particularly that on, on students and families have gone up. So if you were to work your way through college, like so many people were able to do a generation ago, you would literally have to work 80 hours a week. And if you're working 80 hours a week, Jeez. when do you go to class? When do you study? How do you how do you how do you ever finish and then get the real rewards, which is coming with that degree? So when we think about it in real terms of how college has changed, how the economy has changed, it's it's a different conversation than who are we subsidizing? Another thing I'll say is so many people are watching their balances grow. So so much of this is never going to get paid off. So we're so you're so in some ways, you could argue you're subsidizing it anyway. Because so many people are defaulting. So many people are not able to even cover their interests. So we're already subsidizing this in a way and not getting the economic benefits that would come from people being able to contribute to the economy, not just pay back their student loans. I mean, that, that basically you're, what you're arguing is that, you know, by paying off this debt, otherwise wouldn't be paid. You're going to you're going to kind of reengage and kickstart the economy because people now will be able to be a more active participant than they already are. Before we get too deep, and we've been really deep in this, this administration and debt cancellation, can you talk about what this administration is doing now around student debt before we talk about what hasn't happened yet? What's actually happening now? So right now, um, you know, some really great things are happening. Um, the Biden-Harris administration has overhauled the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which is a promise made um, over 10, over 13 years ago now um, to public service that if you work 10 years in public service um, and you stay in repayment, you will get your student loans forgiven at the end of that 10 years. But there have been so many problems plaguing this program in terms of like who could qualify, what type of loans qualified, which payments qualify, which employers qualify. So there've been all these problems. And what the administration did um, is overhaul these issues of which loans qualify and which payments qualify to make it easier for people to actually access public service loan forgiveness and for that promise to be met. So we're you're going to watch tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, over a million folks who are going to see their payment counts increase. This is something that is going to benefit, you know, federal employees, state employees, military service members. It's going to benefit um, people who work at nonprofits, so many people who have been at the front lines of this pandemic and protecting us. And so um, that's a major deal. Making this program work is a big deal. On the other side, recently, um, we, you know, we've been in a payment pause since March 2020 because of the pandemic and the economic impacts it's having on everybody, including student loan borrowers. That payment pause was set to end at the end of January. It's just recently been extended to May 1st, 2022, um, acknowledging the fact that Omicron is still raging. We're still, we're still dealing with the impacts of the COVID pandemic. The other piece is we, uh, the department just wrapped up negotiated rulemaking where they're looking at a number of topics. They're looking at PSLF. They're looking at income-driven repayment. They're looking at borrowed defense repayment. They're looking at other topics. And then that rulemaking will continue um, through this year. And then there will be another negotiated rulemaking session on some other topics earlier this year. So there's really been um, work to overall many of the pain points that borrowers feel um, as they're trying to navigate repayment. So, I mean, this administration is not just sitting on their hands. I mean, contrary to what some people on Twitter uh, like to say, uh, this administration is actually out there doing the work that's necessary. So let's move kind of to the, the next question. Talk about the view that has also emerged recently that the president has the power to unilaterally through an executive order cancel federal student loan debt. 
What are the legal arguments in favor of this? And how compelling do you find those arguments to be? I always tell folk that if the president wanted to do this, he probably could do this. I think he's swayed by that cultural argument that we were making earlier, um, that middle America cultural argument that people want to know why we're giving a windfall to the Ashleys, Bakaris and, and Jared Lodeholtz of the world. Because, you know, tee it up, cancel it and then let the courts decide. What do you what do you say? So I'm going to I'm going to talk about both sides. Uh, but on the one side, what's the legal authority? So the authority um, that is that is that is cited that President that Senator Warren, Senator Schumer, and Representative Presley are are um, are referring to is just authority that's already there under the Higher Education Act. Um, there's a clause in the Higher Education Act that simply says the Secretary has the ability to waive, modify, or compromise terms and obligations under under this under this Act. And so that's the authority. And uh, additionally, there's this other piece of legislation, the HEROES Act, which allows um, the authority to make, the sec- gives the secretary authority to waive and compromise in periods of national emergency, which is currently the COVID pandemic. Yep. Uh, the argument is this authority is already there. This is the this authority has actually been there since the Higher Education Act was created. And so that authority exists, is there. Um, and they further argue that we've already used it. Right. So when President Trump, when President Donald Trump last year um, paused student loan repayment before the CARES Act was ever implemented, when then he extended it later, when President Biden extended it and now it's recently extended again, they are using that authority. And in fact, there was a memo last year under the Trump administration that said they were using that authority. Um, they're also saying that under, under the HEROES Authority, when they're waiving the PSLF requirements, they're using the HEROES Authority in the National Pandemic Emergency to do that. So these are authorities that have been used, just not at the scale that they are asking for it to be used, which is to cancel student loans. On the flip side, that's the argument that the other folks, that the other side will make, right? That that is not what was contemplated in the Higher Education Act, that that is an abuse of authority. It goes beyond the scope what is meant by modify, waive, and compromise. Um, And also that when you think about executive authority, Congress traditionally has the powers of the purse, right? And so if we're going to do this massive spending and forgiveness, that is the role of Congress and not the role of the executive branch. And so it's something that, and, and I think that, um, we've heard from, from different folks saying this should come from Congress to that argument with the power of the purse you know, the Senator Warrens and Warrens and Schumers would argue that Congress has already done that. They gave them power, but also the way budgeting, congressional budgeting and federal budgeting works, the cost of a student loan is fully accounted for at origination. Meaning when we were in law school and we took out loans, the cost of that loan over the whole life of our repayment was supposed to be accounted for then. And then throughout the life of the loan, um, there are modifications made, but that happens automatically. So the budgeting has already been there and already the authority is there and the budgeting, the congressional power of the purse piece has already happened. And this is just a normal thing that happens when when um, estimates um, are modified later as as federal credit um, as federal credit is extended. I want to know if that's clear. I don't know if that's clear to everyone who listens. No, no, that actually is clear. I mean, you gave a you were in the weeds and you gave a legal answer and that's what we wanted. So, no, you were you were extremely clear because the arguments themselves truly sometimes become decently circular. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying you were circular, but the arguments uh, become circular. So if we can agree that the president could actually do this executive order, unpack the politics of why he won't do this 
explain uh, for our listeners, the stakeholders who don't want to see the debt cancellation, who are they and what are their motivation? So I think it, I think there is recently at, there is a lot of support for cancellation, but yes, there continues to be a lot of support against cancellation. It's for the reasons you say. Um, one, folks don't think this is something exec that should be done by executive authority. Two, um, this idea that people should pay back their debts. Like you took out the loans, you should pay back the loans. Three, it doesn't solve the overall college affordability crisis. Um, the, uh, also that, you know, student loan borrowers are actually doing okay, right? Um, these are the people who get a major return on investment for going to college. They get higher income. And so if we really want to help people, why are we focusing on the ones who are, who are, who are supposed to be, um, you know, the, the more well-off folks in society, right? Um, why are we trying to, to help rich, wealthy people um, instead of helping low-income, um, low-wealth people? And so, and it's, you know, just, how expensive it will be, right? If, if we do this, if we're talking about $1.7 trillion, if you cancel 10K, it's, you know, over two, it comes to over $200 billion for if you, if you just do simple math, if you do the 50K, um, it's, you know, it's almost, I think it's over 500 billion. I can't remember exactly if you just, again, if you're just doing simple math, but again, those arguments don't fully take into account the fact that some of this is never going to be repaid. Yeah. Some of it, definitely never going to re be repaid this year or over the course of the next decade. Um, and they don't take into account the fact of who student loan borrowers actually are. I think for so many, there's still this misperception about who the typical student loan borrower is. They don't realize the disproportionate number of low-income, low-wealth people who are borrowing, that the fastest growing population of student loan borrowers is actually people is actually senior citizens. And they're actually, uh, you know, defaulting later in life and seeing their social security checks garnished. And so there's this misperception about who will actually be helped and served. And also there's so many student loan borrowers who actually didn't graduate, who didn't get a diploma, who dropped out. And those are the ones who are most likely to default and most likely need help. It's kind of crazy because we we found ourselves a few weeks ago where the president had to go back and by executive order uh, issue a, a hold on student loan repayments. Um, it seems like he could just split the baby and and, and do ten thousand dollars and call it a call it a day. Let's my last question for you is, let's say that the executive action or the executive order didn't pass constitutional muster. Is there, are there the votes in the United States Congress to see cancellation forgiveness? So first the administration is still looking at whether they can do executive action on cancellation. No uh, decision has been made on that, but um, there, there, the hope there is, there is concern about who should do it, whether it's Congress or um, the federal or the or the executive branch on whether there are the votes in Congress. I mean, you know that Congress is an interesting place, right? And so there are so many things that have to get done. Uh, build back better. They're looking at voting rights. There are so many other other pieces. Um, and you know, build back better at one point had free community college in it. It no longer does. And so I think. You know, I don't want to make I, I think it is highly unlikely I'm with you that student loan cancellation could get through Congress. And I will also say that the other piece is 
if it if it does go through Congress, everything we talked about with the budgeting and things like that, there would have to be a CBO score and it would create a score that wouldn't necessarily reflect the budgeting principles that we talked about before, but that have already kind of been accounted for and already already in place. And so it would come up with this, the way the CBO scores things is very interesting. And so it would have this like price tag that doesn't necessarily reflect what it's at, what would actually be repaid, what it's actually costing and the actual impact it would have on people and the economy. And so it's just a different conversation for cancellation um, on the congressional side than it is for having it done through executive authority. And I think that is part of the reason why you have so many advocates focused on the executive authority to do it, right? Because there's so many things that can't be done without Congress. If there is something that can be done without Congress and that will help so many people, isn't that a good thing? And that's the main, and that's, and I think that's the linchpin of, of that, of that argument. I told y'all she was smarter than me. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much. I know you're snowed in. That's a, who, what artwork is that behind you? It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, you know, I don't really know. I just liked it. I don't know. I just got it at the store. It looked, it looked good. I got all three of them, too. They won't sell. I got them mar- home goods. Now, I, uh, I appreciate you, Ashley. You've always been a good friend to me. If I can ever do anything for you, please let me know. Yes, ma'am? Can I just say one thing? Um, I do want to say to everyone listening, you know, the, the repayment pause has been extended to May 1st. There are steps that borrowers need to take to prepare for that. Also, for P- people who are trying to get PSLF, look at those changes in the waiver because some borrowers you are- gotta, uh-uh, uh-uh. PLSF, you got to break people on forgiveness. Oh, okay. Okay. Trying to get access to that program. Take a look um, at the department's at the department education website. Look at the waiver because there are some steps some borrowers are going to have to take before October 1st, 2022 to actually get access um, and get the benefits of this waiver. I, I, I just want to make sure that as many borrowers as possible um, know what they need to do. Thank you. Now she had to get that in there. That was a footnote that she, she had written down that she was going to get out during this show. So Ashley, thank you so much. Uh, welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. We'll have you on again when this legislation passes. It won't. Or when they sign an executive order. They probably not either. But <laughs> regardless, we're going to have you back. So thank you so much. Be blessed and stay warm. Thank you.